Oh, Father, how we love your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is sweeter than honey. And when we come to it, there is wisdom enough for every issue relative to life and godliness so that every person will be fully adequate and equipped for every good work. Praise you for the sufficiency of your written word. And now, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand, give us understanding where there has been misunderstanding in the past. Give us clarity where perhaps relative to the text this morning, there has in the past been a lack of clarity. No, Father, I pray that you would change the way we think about these things so that we would change the way we live relative to these things so that this church and our influence on all believers everywhere would be one that brings purity, holiness, and unity because of our obedience to you, our Lord. We are your slaves this morning, Father, and we come seeking to understand what you would have us do. And so, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in it, and not only in the teaching and preaching of it this morning and the hearing, but the obedience of it this week. And so we give you thanks and praise for this time, and we ask you to bless it in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 18. In your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18, we've been learning together about Jesus' teaching on church discipline and the need for believers to engage in what we've been calling loving confrontation. I realize that for many people, this is an unusual series of messages because few Christians in our day have ever heard messages dealing with the doctrine of church discipline. It's not something that draws the masses to come and hear. And some might be wondering why this is such a big deal. Well, the answer to that is, is really rooted in God's commitment to building a, his church, building his church in all purity, holiness, and unity, the things that cannot possibly be accomplished in the presence of unrepentant sin. And we get that from a lot of scriptures, and I just want to mention one to substantiate that claim, and that is Ephesians 5. I pick one that we all know. Ephesians 5 is the passage that we typically use to uh, address the role of husband and wife in uh, marriage. But really, Paul there is talking not only about marriage, but about Christ and his church, and how marriage is really just a... a a temporal picture of an eternal reality relative to Christ's love and provision and sacrifice for his church. And so we read in Ephesians 5 these words, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and here's why, so that he might sanctify her, the word sanctify means to make holy, to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. In other words, Jesus died to save a bride 
his bride from sin and to make her holy even as he is holy. Not just to declare her legally holy, but to make her holy indeed so that our lives, both individually and collectively, would be lives of holiness and purity. That's the way we are to live. Sin never did anything to help the church. Sin never did anything to help your family. Sin never did anything to contribute anything good to your marriage. There's nothing about sin that is anything except a spiritual cancer. Can God use it to change us? Can God use the exposure of it to change us and to sanctify us? Of course. And that's why loving confrontation is so important. The only thing sin does is prevents the bride of Christ from experiencing the deepest joy and reaching the world with unmitigated spiritual power. It's sin. Sin is no friend of the church. And yet, for some reason, local church leaders are reticent and sometimes even resistant to the idea of addressing blatant sin in a church. And there's a question that you can ask when you want to know the quality of of a local church. How long could someone or perhaps a couple come to your church living in blatant sin, whether they are engaging in homosexuality or perhaps they're living together unmarried, how long could they continue coming to your church without someone approaching them and addressing them and calling them to repentance? How long? I'm afraid in many, many places that call themselves the body of Christ People will stay in that condition, in that church for years. And everybody knows what's going on in their lives. And nobody ever talks about it. No one ever addresses it. Which is the same as saying, no one ever obeys the word of the Lord concerning them. They think it's unloving or intolerant. It's too demanding. I've heard a number of pastors say, look, if if we address sin in our church church of this size, you know, large church, that's all we would do. To which my response is, no, you wouldn't. Your church would get smaller. (laughs) And then you would have all the time in the world to do the things that you think God wants you to do. (coughs) Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, just the opposite is true. To the degree that a church neglects to deal with sin, to that degree, it will remain impotent and unhealthy in God's eyes, no matter how large it grows. From time to time, every every loving relationship requires loving confrontation. Every relationship. Every relationship. How many relationships? How many marriages require loving confrontation? Every Including mine? Yes, including mine. In fact, it happens more frequently than I care to um, admit. Usually, uh, I'm the one who's on the receiving end because I need it more than perhaps anybody else in my family. But it's good for us, and we need to be engaging in loving confrontation, and the Lord lays it out for us. Everyone from time to time needs to be addressed relative to sin that perhaps is in their life they may not even know about it. I was out the other night sitting in the lobby of Texas Wesleyan where my kids um, are involved in a swim team there every, every night, five nights a week. 
And um, it's the only time I ever see TV. And the only time I ever see a signal coming in from the outside world other than on my computer is uh, when I'm there and, and watching TV. And uh, they had, there, was a, there was a program on. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called The Dog Whisperer. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a thriller. <laughs> and it was about this lady who had a little yippy little dog about this big. And the dog had a problem. Every time she pulled out the ironing board, that dog would attack it and bark and bite and tear at that thing. And then when she would plug in the iron, the dog would jump at the cord and jerk it out of the wall. She was afraid the dog would electrocute herself. And whenever she plugged in the vacuum sweeper, it was the same deal. So she called the dog whisperer. And the dog whisperer came to her house and said, show me what your dog does. And she showed her. And, and he said, that's great. Let's sit down and talk about this thing. There's something that you need to know about dogs. Every dog needs three things. Every dog needs affection, exercise, and discipline. And frankly, ma'am, you've been good with the exercise, you've been lavish with the affection, but you don't know diddly about discipline. <laughs> and then he showed her a few steps on how to teach that dog what's right, what's acceptable, and what's wrong. And I sat there thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, this guy is preaching what needs to be said to every parent and every pastor <laughs> in the Western world. I mean, is it not that simple? It's not that complicated. There is no relationship that does not require loving confrontation, even in your relationship with your dog, apparently. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, which we will get to in a few weeks. There has to be discipline. There has to be loving confrontation when unrepentant sin comes to light. Otherwise, the church in general and all believers in particular will be left to suffer the consequences of undealt with spiritual cancer in their souls, which eats at them, which affects their prayer life, which destroys their marital unity and wreaks havoc in the church in general. It must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And if it's not going to be dealt with by the individual before God alone, which is where it should happen, then other people who love them need to get involved. Men, you shouldn't be reticent to have your wife come and point out sin in your life. It's good for you. Wives, don't get all testy about your husband coming and pointing out sin in your life. Now, we need to be careful. Just refer back to the previous three messages that we don't bite and devour one another. We don't get picky. We don't nag one another. We need to be careful. We need to not just jump in there and do it every time we see the slightest infraction. And we need to do it in a tentative way and allow the Word of God to speak and the Holy Spirit to work and all of those things that we've already learned. But oh my goodness, we must do it. And we must do it. Now, what have we learned about discipline so far, just by way of review? Number one, discipline should only happen between professing believers, preferably in the context of the local church, but not exclusively. Number two, when an unrepentant sin comes to light, the person who discovers it should approach the erring brother or sister privately and in a tentative way. You may not have all the information. Perhaps there's some things you need to learn about what you saw that will put, cast the whole situation in a different light but you give them the benefit of the doubt even while you are approaching them. Number three, if he repents, then you rejoice over the grace of God in his life and, and the process is finished. 
and nobody else even knows it ever happened. But if he doesn't repent, then two or three others should be brought in to help bring him to repentance. And if he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, then the whole church should be brought in to help, calling that person to repentance. And then Jesus says, finally, if that doesn't work, the church should be exhorted that uh, be exhorted to begin relating to that person as an unbeliever, as a tax gatherer, as a Gentile. They are no longer allowed to fellowship or even share a meal with that person until that person repents. And that's how serious this is. This, beloved, is Jesus' design for maintaining holiness and purity in the church and in your home. But mainly in the church, He's wanting to maintain the holiness and purity and unity of the church for which he suffered and died to save. He wants to maintain the purity, the holiness, and the unity that he gave us on the day that we were born again. When all of your sins were confessed, when your heart was cleansed from the inside out, and you were standing in all purity before the Lord and before the people that you love, that's how we should live all the time. And that's why we need the gospel daily, taking all of our shortcomings, all of our sin, back to the cross daily and to the people that we've sinned against when necessary. This is the Lord's command for his servants to obey as they serve as stewards. Jesus did not present all of this as a suggestion or as an optional thing for the church to fall back on when things get really bad. No, the Lord commands his servants to obey these things as they serve as stewards of his church, stewards of their families. And because we are still sinners, listen, because all of us are still sinners, Step number one of this plan should be occurring frequently and privately, all the time. I don't mean all the time in your home, but as a church, there shouldn't be a day. And we don't know what's going on in people's homes. And again, we don't, we don't need to know. But if you, were to be, if you were able to see what's happening in the lives of each of our families during the week, you should see loving confrontation happening on a regular basis, a regular basis. We should be training our children even from when they're the youngest that God hates sin. God deeply loves them and that's why he's made provision for sin so that you don't have to be a slave to sin. You can be redeemed from sin and you can be born again. But this should be happening between all of us privately, tentatively, very carefully, and according to God's word. Now, all of that is review, and you're familiar with these things because we spent weeks discussing it, but it's important to note that Jesus doesn't end his teaching here with step four. Step four is over, that's the end of the process, but then he keeps talking. There's more for him to teach us and more for us to understand, and so we continue. He doesn't finish with verse 17 of Matthew 18. In fact, there, there are three more verses that Jesus offers us in terms of his teaching on the subject. In the final words on the subject of discipline, Jesus acknowledges what every one of us feels whenever we think that the responsibility to confront a brother or sister in Christ has fallen to us. You ever felt that feeling? I mean, it's one of those feelings that you never thought you'd ever want to feel before, and when it came, you didn't like feeling it. 
when you feel like you've got a brother in the Lord or, or a peer in the church that you need to confront lovingly, I mean, it, your heart just sinks. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I mean, who am I? And that's the question that comes up. The reason we've, we don't want to do this is because we ask ourselves, who am I to judge another person's life? And perhaps we've bought the whole um, uh, postmodern key verse of the Bible, favorite verse of the world uh, from the Bible, judge not lest you be judged. I mean, is that the ruling verse of your life? Shouldn't be. There's a place for it. But this shouldn't be the ruling verse. Perhaps the ruling verse should be we make it our ambition, whether in life or in death, to be pleasing to the Lord. But we're hesitant. We think, who am I to judge another person's life? I have enough sin to deal with in my own soul. Besides, what authority do I have to judge the sin of another person? But on this point, Jesus has more to say. He knows we're going to think that. He knows we're going to feel that. He knows we're going to need the encouragement to do what he's commanded us to do. And so he keeps teaching. The Lord not only commands us to engage in loving confrontation, he also gives us the authority to do it and then promises to stand with us when we do. Now, let's look at this text. In fact, I've been talking for a long time, so let's stand. And we're going to read this text together. This is Matthew 18. We're going to begin with verse 18. And we're going to read 18, 19, and 20. If you have the New American Standard Bible, feel free to read out loud with us. Otherwise, there is a copy of the New American Standard in the pew. You can follow along there. Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 18. Let's read together. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. There are two things I want you to see here, and the first one is this. I want us to see God's authority in loving confrontation. God's authority in loving confrontation. God actually bestows upon us his own authority whenever it has come to us that we must address another person in their sin. And we discover in this text something very significant and pretty unusual. Jesus not only tells us what he wants us to do, he takes a step further by giving us the authority to do it. Now, there are a few places in the gospel where Jesus goes out of his way to communicate to his followers, his disciples, that he gives them authority to do this or that. You see that, uh, for example, again in Matthew chapter 28, where he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so the idea is, I have authority over everything as the Son of Man, and I am with you, so as you go, do what I command you to do in my authority. But you don't read Jesus saying that very often. But this is one of those places. There are just a few places where we read it. But here in verse 18 is one of those examples. And, and this is how he says it. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is a very significant statement for us. And if we don't understand this, then we can't understand the rest of this passage. In fact, if we were honest, at the end of this message, if I asked for a raising of hands of everyone who has come to the conclusion that they totally misunderstood this text their whole life before today, I think there'd probably be 50% of, of the church, maybe more, who would raise their hand because we don't know what this text means, and we should. And by God's grace, you will before you leave here today. It's a very significant statement. But in order to understand it, we need to turn back a few pages in Matthew and get the context. Matthew chapter 16. Now, some of you who are very biblically minded and uh, theologically minded, as soon as I say Matthew 16, you think Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's exactly where we're going. Matthew chapter 16, and I want us to start reading at verse 13. I'll read, you just follow along. Matthew 16, verse 13, and now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And oh, I wish I had time to unpack the whole Son of Man motif in Scripture. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, and you'll have to look that up when you go home. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, mm-hmm, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, little stone, and upon this rock, this boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, that's death, will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is another passage that is sorely abused by various sects of Christianity. And we don't have time to go into all of that. The only thing I have time to do this morning is to explain it without making reference to the people who misunderstand it. Verse 19 is worded exactly the same way as what we read in chapter 18, verse 18. So whatever Jesus is meaning in the passage I'm preaching from this morning in chapter 18, whatever he's meaning when he... When he says to those who are exercising church discipline that whatever you bind on earth, earth shall be or shall have been bound in heaven, uh, it's rooted here in chapter 16. The meaning of it is rooted in chapter 16. And basically, this is what he's telling Peter. He's telling Peter in, in chapter 16 and the other apostles who were there with him that he is going to build his church on the gospel, which is summarized in Peter's statement, which is this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel. There is nothing else relevant to the gospel if that's not in place. That's the cornerstone of the church. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's what he's telling Peter. Uh, Peter. 
these words, along with a fuller explanation of the gospel that will come as the Holy Spirit reveals it, these are the keys to the kingdom by which Peter and the other apostle preachers will open the door to the kingdom for some and lock it closed for others. What does that mean? It simply means this, beloved. Jesus came to bring the good news that God has made provision for sin through the suffering Messiah on the cross, which he had not experienced yet, was a, but was about to, as we'll see this coming Friday night, Good Friday service. But this is the gospel, and the gospel is the key by which those who preach it will unlock the door to the kingdom of heaven for any sinner who will believe, and they will be received by Jesus and by the Father. But anyone who rejects this gospel, just insert in this context the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and anyone else who followed them, those who reject Christ and his gospel, the door of the kingdom is closed and locked, and they will be cast into outer darkness. And those who preach the gospel will have authority to say, this one has been received of the Father, and this one is living in unbelief. They're an unbeliever and are in danger of being locked out of the kingdom forever. That's what he's telling Peter. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, meaning whatever you say, ah, oh, brother, you have received the message of the gospel. Blessed are you. You are now welcomed into the kingdom of God. It is the only way in. You must come through, as John Bunyan would say, the wicked gate, the narrow path, the gate that is small, the way that is narrow. And if you come by that way, you will be received. Come, Jesus said, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Now, Matthew 18 is just an application of that truth. He's calling Peter and the apostles, and by virtue of, through them, all of us who proclaim the word of God, all of us who minister the word of God, whether it be in a formal sense like I do, or even in your homes, dads, or you women, even among the other women, Christian women and unbelieving women that you know. God has given us this authority. God has given us the authority to proclaim the truth and to warn people. I was in counseling one day, in fact, many, many times, and someone will come in and they're depressed or they're anxious or whatever, and I, I start poking around asking questions and find out they're engaged in sin, long-term sin, long-term sin. And I'll get asking them about it and ask them about, you know, uh, I just need to get to know your spiritual life a little bit. Tell me, um, you're engaged in this sin. I want to know about other aspects of your life. Uh, 
Did you, did you spend time in the Word today? How was your time in the Word today? Oh, I didn't read the Bible today. How about yesterday? How about the day before? The day before that, I had one brother say, look, let me save you some time. I haven't done that in a long time. Okay. Um, what about uh, your commitment to the local church? Do you love the brothers and sisters? Do you love to be with them? That's what 1 John says. You know that you've passed from death into life because you love the brethren. How's your relationship with the church? Oh, I don't go to church. Okay, so we'll say no on loving Bible, no on loving the brethren. Uh, tell me about your, your relationship with Jesus. Do you love him? Do you love him from the heart? Does it grieve you when you sin? I mean, Jesus said in John chapter 8, if God were your father, you would love me. Do you love him? No, I can't, can't say, honestly, I can't say that I love him. Okay. And you're committing this sin on a regular basis. Yes. Would you say that the lifestyle that you just presented to me is one of belief, believing that what God's word says about the way you should live is good and best for you, and you're obedient to that? Or would you say it's consistent with unbelief, that you believe your way is better than God's way? Which, which way is more consistent relative to your life? And they always say, I never thought about it like that. I guess I'll have to go with option two, unbelief. And you know what I'm going to say now, right? And I'll say, well, I'm sorry, but we have a special name for people who live consistently in unbelief. We call them an unbeliever. And I exhort you to repent. And I'm going to help you repent. But your only hope is to come to the cross. Come to the cross where your slavery to sin can be stripped from you and you can be loosed. But if you don't repent, there is no hope. The door to the kingdom is eternally closed. We have the authority to do that. We don't do it presumptuously. And there's always hope, right? I mean, even if we, after we reveal that to a person, after we make that judgment upon a person, we still live in hope as long as they're breathing in and out that maybe God in his grace could bring them to repentance. But as it stands, you're outside the kingdom or you were in. Peter and the others were able to say with authority in such cases that some people remain bound or enslaved to their sin while others are loosed or set free from their slavery to sin. And on those occasions, when such a judgment must be made, Jesus is saying, notice the wording here. Truly I say to you, and when we were reading it together, I read it wrong and you read it right. That's why there, there was that confusion there for a second. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, now, now notice how it's word, worded, shall have been bound in heaven. Shall have been bound. A Greek's funny that way with its tenses and moods. It gets a little moody. But notice what else he says. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's the right translation of this text. And this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, on those occasions when a judgment must be made, he says, it will have already been ratified in heaven. Don't you worry about where God stands on this. Because when two or three of you get together to make this judgment, know for certain that if you're following God's prescription on how to get there, he's already agreeing with you. He is already in agreement with you. 
relative to that person's relationship to the kingdom. Now, when we get to chapter 18, then, Jesus is simply putting this amazing teaching into practice. He's saying, when a professing believer in the church refuses to repent of blatant sin, then when he has been confronted by one and then by two or three and then even by the entire church, if he continues in his rebellion against God's demands upon his life, eventually the leaders of the church are going to have to make a public judgment about the condition of his soul. Now, there's no doubt about it, beloved. That's going to be a hard thing to do. It's always a hard thing to do. No one wants to publicly declare that another professing Christian is actually an unbeliever, but in rare cases, it must be done. It must be done for their sake. They can never walk out of there because of the way Jesus presents this, that God agrees with you when two or three come together in agreement in their judgment against this unrepentant sinning brother. That person cannot leave the church and say, look, it's me and Jesus. Jesus is on my side. No way. Not if God's word is true. If words have any meaning at all, then that cannot be the case. You're in a serious situation, and there's still time to repent as long as you live. But you must repent. And until then, as far as the church is concerned, you're lost. And what you need is evangelism. What you need is for someone to come and plead with you to come to the cross and receive and be received by the Lord Jesus. Jesus is saying when the church meets together in that terrible day, remember this, whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. Can you believe it? I mean, in our house, we try not to use the word awesome very much because there are few things in life that are truly awesome. This, beloved, is fearfully awesome. Awesome. And nobody feels that here more than me because I'm always the guy that has to stand up here and do it. I shouldn't say always, because it's been so rare here. In my ministry as senior pastor, I think I've done it three times publicly in 10 years. Praise God. It tells me two things. It tells me that um, by God's grace, I'm working with an elder board that is committed to doing things according to the scriptures, and you should rejoice in that. But it tells me something else, too. It tells me that we have a lot of people in this church who are willing to repent humbly before the Lord whenever they're confronted with sin. And for every one time you've seen something public here, I could tell you of 20 or 30 other occasions where brother or sister was confronted in their sin and led through the process of repentance and are thriving in this church and perhaps even in leadership here now because of the work of grace that God did in their hearts because of our obedience to his word. Now, there's no doubt about it. This is going to be a hard thing. It's always a hard thing. 
But this isn't where Jesus stops. He doesn't just stop by giving us his authority. Jesus' second statement is as wonderful as the first was terrible. Namely, that whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, beloved, the goal all along has been repentance and restoration. There are There are some occasions when by the amazing kindness and grace of God, a person has experienced the full process of church discipline will eventually turn around and repent. And on that day, it should be recognized that salvation has come to this house and has been publicly declared. It needs to be publicly declared. This brother who we bound publicly is now loosed. He is utterly and completely forgiven by God and by his people, and is now free to return to the relationships in the church that have been restricted from him for so long. This is going to be amazing to see when we get back into 1 Corinthians, because in chapter 5, what's next is Paul is going to put this into practice. Here's Jesus teaching on it. This is why I jumped into it now, because chapter 5, Paul's going to be dealing with immorality in the church, and he follows his plan exactly. And he tells them, take that professing brother and kick him out of the church. He cannot be free to live in immorality. It's totally antithetical to the gospel. He's making a mockery of the cross. Kick him out. And then 2 Corinthians comes along. And Paul writes, would you please give the guy a break? He's repentant already. Bring him back into the church. That's what we strive for. That's what we strive for. Total and complete restoration. And what often happens is, well, sometimes people leave and they never come back. And maybe they hate us to their dying day. And that's a shame. And some will be awakened by the Holy Spirit, maybe sometime later. And they'll come back and ask for forgiveness and be completely restored. But in either case, the church is warned. The church is purified. I don't know about you, but I'm aware of some things that have happened in the community at large recently about some brothers in the Lord who have done some, have engaged in pretty significant sin. And you know what? That was a big warning shot for every pastor in this community. You better be careful. You better guard your own heart. You better not allow sin to get a hold. You better be keeping short accounts. You better be keeping current with your wife and with your family, your children, your church. You better be walking in the light because if you don't, you're setting yourself and your church up for disaster and your family as well. Beloved, we've seen this at Calvary Bible Church, this whole loosing of people. In fact, When I became senior pastor of this church, the first person we disciplined publicly became the only person we have ever restored publicly. And what a wonderful day of rejoicing that was. Unfortunately, many churches know nothing of such joy because they set aside Jesus' commands about how sin in the church is to be addressed. Do you see, beloved? God God has not only given us the command to discipline by the authority of God, but he is given us the promise of his presence in the process as well. And that's the next thing we see. 
He's not only given us the authority, but he's promised us his presence, God's presence in loving confrontation. Look at verses 19 and 20. And again, I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Behold, one of the most misunderstood and badly applied scriptures in all of the Bible. This text has nothing to do with prayer meeting. There's nothing in the context about prayer meeting. I love Charles Spurgeon, but he says prayer meeting, and I think, you know, I bought this software just to look up this one thing. And uh, Spurgeon, your picture's on my wall. <laughs> but he gets this wrong. This is so crucial for us to understand. Before I unpack it, however, let's remind ourselves about the most important principle of biblical interpretation, shall we? What's the most important bi uh, 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 principle of biblical interpretation? How do you interpret the Bible? What's the most important principle? And you would say, context is king. That's right, context is king. Good class, you did very well. Every text needs to be interpreted in a manner that is consistent with its context. A text without a context it's a pretext for a proof text. Now, what's the context here? What's the context of this verse? What is Jesus talking about in verses 15 through 20, class? He's talking about church discipline. Now, let me ask you another question. What kind of sermons have most often used this church to appear? What, what kind of message, what subject is usually used, or, or this, this passage is usually used to support. Sermons on what? Prayer. And have you ever heard a sermon on prayer which uses this text, which starts with verse 15? No, never. Why? Because it doesn't fit. Everyone would be confused if the pastor preached a message on prayer meeting and started in the context with verse 15, because it's intuitive. It doesn't match. It doesn't fit. You know, when Paul told Timothy to um, be diligent, to present himself a, um, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, in the Greek there, it's really, it's really specific. He's talking about, it, it literally says, cutting it straight. And I learned this week uh, where this came from. The Apostle Paul was a tent maker. And we know in that day, uh, they mostly made tents out of animal hides. And if you were going to patchwork uh, a bunch of animal hides to make a tent out of it, it's really important that you cut every piece perfectly straight. Otherwise, it wouldn't fit. If you take a text and remove it from its context, you're going to rip it. And it's not going to fit. It has to fit. If it doesn't fit, then you didn't cut it straight. And so we need to interpret this according to its context. The problem is Jesus is not speaking about prayer here. He doesn't, he's, not, uh, he's not trying to teach on prayer. He does teach on prayer. In fact, he teaches extensively on prayer in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. But not here. 
Jesus has much to say about prayer elsewhere, but in this text, Jesus is not teaching about prayer. He's speaking about church discipline. Someone may ask me, in fact, someone did ask me one day on this issue, doesn't this verse apply generally to how we should understand prayer? To which I say, no, no. Your application has got to fit the interpretation. Why? Because if you belong to Christ, then he is always present with you. If you're on a deserted island all by yourself or at the bottom of the sea or flying in the heavens, for goodness sake, Christ is with you already. You don't need two or three other people for that to be the case. You already are in Christ. And so no, this is not even to be applied relative to prayer in general. Not only that, but some will use this verse to say that whenever two or three, listen, whenever two or three agree in prayer about any issue at all, God is bound by his word to grant whatever you ask. And that's used, I mean, right now, somebody's preaching that. Right this minute, and probably in Fort Worth, North. <laughs> oh boy. If my wife were here, she'd be cringing right now. This is not what Jesus is saying here at all. So, how should we understand this verse? Notice first, first of all, the word again at the beginning of verse 19. Again, I say to you, again at the beginning of verse 19 reflects back to what Jesus was saying in verse 18. The word again here in the Greek was used to show a repetition of the same idea communicated with different words, kind of like a Hebrew parallelism. You say it once, and then you say it again in a different way. In this case, he's adding uh, new ideas to it as well. So whatever he means in verse 19 must have something to do with the binding and loosing of verse 18. Do you see that? Again, I say to you. Now, it's helpful to look at the Greek here because people get hung up on the words about anything. He says, again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything that they may ask. And it looks like carte blanche, Right? I mean, anything you want, anything, you just name it and claim it. There we go again. <laughs> but what we need to realize here is that in the Greek, this is a technical term. And you can't see that in the English. So you're either going to have to trust me on this or you're going to have to do some Greek study. Go use eSword or whatever Bible software you have and look this up. But in the Greek, this is a technical term used most commonly in the court system. Peri pontus pragmatos should be rendered about any judicial matter. Any matter re uh, relative to the case at hand. This was a legal term. Any judicial matter. Jesus is not talking about prayer relative to any random issue of concern. No. He's talking about two or three people coming together to form a judgment about the issue at hand, namely the spiritual condition and position of a person undergoing church discipline. That's what he's talking about. And you can't make that judgment unless there are at least how many witnesses? Two, and preferably three. That's the way the law stated it. 
And we looked at that a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy, the restatement of the law, you could not find anyone guilty on the testimony of one witness. There had to be more. And so it's not about anything in general, but about about any judicial matter. D.A. Carson helps us with the historical context here. He writes, in Jesus' day, this reflected well-known Jewish legal practice. Each of the disputing parties would nominate his own judge or uh, layperson to help. A layman who would be known to be impartial and able to judge the case And these two would get together and try to settle the problem together. If their efforts failed, they would approach a third to bring in who was unconnected with the disputants who worked with the others either along the lines of arbitration or adjudication. And the parallel here with Jesus' words is very neat and clean and nicely accounts for Jesus' words two or three about any judicial matter. So what Jesus is saying here is that whenever the guidelines of church discipline are followed relative to a sinning brother, let me say that again, whenever Jesus' commands, his guidelines are followed relative to any sinning brother, God requires the church to do a very difficult thing. But we should remember that whenever we find ourselves in that position, we're not alone. In fact, When we meet corporately to declare the judgment either for or against someone in the church, the Lord Jesus himself promises to be right there personally in our midst affirming that judgment. And so he says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about any judicial matter, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, that means according to my word or submitting to my authority in the matter, then I am there. I'm there. And and the tense here in the Greek is, I was already there. I was there before you got there. It's the idea of the Shekinah glory appearing before the presence of the people. It's that that special presence of God that that you can't see, but Jesus is saying, just know, I realize I'm asking you to do a really hard thing here, but don't you shy away from doing it. It's what's best for the church. It's what's best for the individual. It's what's best for his family. You have my authority, not only that, but you have my presence. You have my presence. Someone will say, well, what about the word, but what about the words, anything they may ask? Doesn't that imply prayer? To which I would respond, yes, but maybe not like what you've thought. Yes, but it, this is the prayer of the congregation, whether they be three or 300, that simply says, Father, Our brother has repented of his sin. In obedience to your word, we now forgive him. Lord, would you please forgive him too? Would you cleanse him and restore him and reunite him to the church that he loves and to his family? And what Jesus is saying is that on such occasion, 
the father's response is, I already have. Negatively, the church may have to declare publicly that there can be no other conclusion than that an unrepentant man or woman in the church is an unbeliever, in which case the prayer might be something like this, O Father, this man has left us no recourse but to judge that he is an unbeliever. What we have done on earth, will you please do in heaven in order to purify and unify your church? To which the Father responds, Jesus says, I already have. That is awesome. I mean, we should just fall on our faces right now and give God glory. No human could have come up with this. Does that mean God will bring such a person to repentance? Not necessarily. We don't know what God's purpose may be for him, but we can plead on his behalf that God would bring him to repentance and trust that no matter what God's purpose is, he can be trusted. Beloved, loving confrontation is not something to be avoided. It is God's prescription for maintaining the purity and unity of this church, and that's why this is a precious doctrine to us. We practice church discipline here because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've come to understand that he loves his church too much to allow the sin, the cancer of sin to run its course, defiling, degrading, and destroying the bride that he died to save. Many years ago, the elders had to approach a leader in this church one day. And we had been kind of approaching him, but one day we had to remove him from leadership. And we did so privately. And I'll never forget, this, this professing brother was angry, and he looked at Frank Shannon, and he said, brother, this could happen to you someday. And Frank looked back at him and said, brother, if I ever fall into what you have fallen into, I hope they do. This is God's word. And I say, let God be God. What the church needs today is not more programs, not more strategies. What we need is holiness and unity and purity. But we'll never be there if we are not resolved to let God be God. Let his word be true. Let's see ourselves as his slaves Dulas, and him as our Lord, Kurios. And we are nothing more. We are people who have no rights and no reputation. And the happiest children I have ever met are those whose parents faithfully lavish them with love and faithfully discipline them with care when they stray. And the church is Christ's family. His love for us is infinitely greater than the love of any parent we can have for our children. And this is precisely why he has graciously entrusted us with the responsibility to discipline sin on his behalf. Now, before I close this morning, can I just plead with you for a moment? Steps two, three, and four should never be necessary in this church. 
should never be necessary in this church. All of us should be walking in the light, as John says. All of us should have an open and honest attitude about our sin. All of us should be ready so that when someone comes to us and they say, brother, I love you, I see something in your life and I just have some questions. Our first response should be, who are you to judge? Shouldn't be that. It should be, okay, I'm bracing myself. Let me hear it. It should be, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. It should be, Lord, equip me of hidden sin, things that I don't even know about. The fact is, all of us sin, and sometimes we just need help seeing it and defining it and repenting of it. And I just want to plead with you to make that easy for the person who's going to risk approaching you about your sin. Make it easy for them. Don't make it hard. Don't make it hard. That won't be good for you or for them. Let's not be a proud people. Let's be people who live in the kind of humility that is to, sh to show uh, selflessness when we're approached. And we're quick to consider the possibility that perhaps the person confronting us about sin is right and not wrong. Perhaps they've been sent by the Lord to graciously lead us away from sin that entices and enslaves us. Because, because God loves us, because he loves us enough to address the issues of our heart that are bad for us so that we will know fullness of joy. And more than that, let's plead with God to make us the kind of people who are so sensitive to our own sin that we never have to wait for another person to approach us about it because we're quick to deal with it ourselves, asking forgiveness of God and asking forgiveness of the people that we've sinned against. And then step one would never even be necessary. That's what God wants for his church. And when that's happening, we won't have to strive for purity and unity and holiness in the church or in our homes. It'll just be there. It'll just be there because we diligently seek to keep short accounts of sin. But on the other hand, when it comes your, your time to confront, remember this. When loving confrontation is unavoidable, God promises his own authoritative presence with those who address sin according to his plan. Isn't that wonderful? God loves you. And that's why he's given us this truth. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for this awesome, awesome revelation of your truth. You are God. Oh, Father, we act like little gods, but we're slaves of our Lord. And we experience the most joy in life when we are submitting to his rule over our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church and as individuals and as families to submit to you on this point so that you will not have to say to us, why, why do you call me Lord, but don't do the things I say? Oh, Father, may rather we hear on that last day, well done, good and faithful slave. These are hard things for us, but you've given them for our good 
for our eternal joy. And so we praise you and we bless your name that you were more concerned about our eternal joy and our holiness than you are about affirming our personality or making us feel good about ourselves. May our esteem be all of Christ. May our affection be all about him. May our adoration be him alone. And may our wills be subject to his rule. For we pray it by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.